Welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Society. This is the special series on dystonia, and it is a pleasure to us today, Dr. Davide Martino from University of Calgary. And the topic is Beyond Torsion, the non-motor features of dystonia. Welcome, Davide. Thank you very much, Francesca, for having me. Pleasure. Davide, which are the non-motor features of dystonia? So dystonia, as we have learned in the probably past couple of decades more intensely, has a spectrum of non-motor features of dystonia that include sensory features, particularly dominated by pain and uncomfortable sensations related to the body region affected by dystonia. There are important symptoms related to emotional dysregulation, therefore different forms of anxiety and depressed mood are often reported by patients with different forms of dystonia. We have definitely been observing sleep disruption in people who have different forms of dystonia, which again can vary significantly from early insomnia to interrupted nighttime sleep and frequent nocturnal awakenings, and in some cases also daytime sleepiness. And there are also other features that are still particularly poorly investigated, which include a sense of generalized fatigue through the day. Some patients report a sense of apathy. And there are other aspects that pertain to cognition, which are not apparent in everyday life, but may be related to executive functions. And there's some more recent interest in sexual dysfunction in people with dystonia, which remains, however, very poorly and insufficiently explored aspect of this condition. So a wide spectrum of non-motor symptoms, but pain seems to be a particularly disabling feature of dystonia. Can you describe the characteristic of pain in dystonia and which type of dystonia are more affected by pain? So pain is present across different forms of dystonia, and certainly it seems to be more central to the clinical presentation of cervical dystonia in the adult population. And people with generalized dystonia within the early onset forms of dystonia may report pain that affects primarily, again, the trunk, the torso, and to a lesser degree, also the limbs. People with hand dystonia may also report sometimes pain, particularly when performing the tasks that are inducing dystonia most intensely and commonly. And there may be uncomfortable sensations in the eyes of people who have blepharospasm. The pain may have different quality and is usually predominantly presenting or manifesting as a musculoskeletal type of pain or a myofascial type of pain. In cervical dystonia, really, it spreads from the neck to the shoulders and goes all the way down to upper back even upper limbs. And it is usually, as I mentioned, located to the areas that are affected mostly by dystonia. But if we think about specific forms of adult onset dystonia like blepharospasm, the uncomfortable and unpleasant eye symptoms that people with blepharospasm report are often also accompanied by a pain triggered by lights, photophobia, which remains a very mysterious manifestation of blepharospasm. Do treatment with botulinum toxin or the brain stimulation improve pain in dystonia? It does, and both these treatments do improve pain. It is obviously for botulinum toxin, this is also strongly related to the technique and to the type of treatment that a patient receives. And sometimes we need to follow the pain in cervical dystonia when we perform the injections, not just following the abnormal posture or the abnormal movements, but we also need to follow the pain. And that might give a good outcome to our injections. And DBS equally helps pain generally. And many patients, particularly with botulinum toxin injections, pain 
can be a symptom that can respond even in the absence of optimal response to motor features. It is not uncommon that patients report having felt better with pain, but still having perhaps some of the motor features of cervical dystonia, a bit of tremor, a bit of pulling sensations. So definitely we can do a lot for pain in dystonia. And even though I must say that many patients with severe pain have dystonia also resort to other types of treatments, including general painkillers or even benzodiazepines to try and alleviate the pain. So it is sometimes a symptom that requires the treatment of which needs to be monitored because it may also be associated with self-medication from the patient's side. And now another very important feature is represented by the sleep disturbances. Again, another multifactorial feature. Can you comment on that? Yeah, and you're right in saying it's multifactorial because obviously factor analysis or cluster analysis that have been conducted in recent years show that sleep problems in dystonia are determined not just by the severity of dystonia per se, particularly if we look at cervical or cranial dystonia, but also to other non-motor features of dystonia. And unsurprisingly, depression is probably one of the greatest determinants of sleep disruption in people with dystonia. So we have to keep in mind that sometimes treating other non-motor features may also help sleep disruption. Generally speaking, it is important to interrogate the patient on the type of sleep disturbance that he or she may be presenting with. And because the treatment varies depending on the type of sleep disruption that the patient reports, Another important aspect of sleep, probably even a determinant of poor sleep, is the fact that some patients, a proportion of patients with dystonia, tend to use beyond the specialist's intervention, sometimes referring to the family physician's health, benzodiazepines, which have an important impact on the structure of sleep. And I personally find that my patients who take benzodiazepines recurrently are also the ones who end up having more chronic progression of their insomnia, which may impact on their general function. So another important aspect when assessing sleep is getting a very good and honest medication history from the patient. Thanks for this important insight. It has a lot of impact on our clinical practice. And finally, there is the dark side of dystonia, the neuropsychiatric spectrum very often neglected and poorly treated. What you can tell us about that? Well, definitely alongside with pain, the depression and anxiety problems are the most common non-motor features in Estonia. And now there is really a plethora of studies that consistently have demonstrated how depression and anxiety are the strongest contributors to poor quality of life people with dystonia, particularly with adult onset dystonia. And certainly these have been investigated quite thoroughly, and we know that there are forms of dystonia in which certain types of anxiety disorders, for example, are more prevalent than in other forms. For example, the social anxiety disorder, which is one of the key aspects of emotional dysregulation and behavioral dysregulation, is more profoundly associated with those forms of dystonia that have an impact on social communication. So laryngeal dystonia and secondly, cervical dystonia certainly are characterized by a strong impact of social anxiety. But it's also true that there may also be an underlying neurobiological underpinning to emotional dysregulation in people with dystonia that could explain a certain proneness to develop generalized anxiety. So rather than contingency-related anxiety or a depressive disorder in people with dystonia. So would you say that the same narrow abnormalities that determine the movement disorder would bring out also the neuropsychiatric spectrum and in particular depression and anxiety in dystonia? This is certainly a very intriguing aspect that has not been fully demonstrated. 
But there's a lot of interest in performing, for example, adequate imaging studies to corroborate this hypothesis. In my personal contribution to the field, I've also observed in a large population-based studies that I conducted with using the Swedish National Registries that depressive and anxiety disorders co-segregate with the dystonia families indicating that unaffected relatives like siblings who are not affected by dystonia have a greater risk of developing mood and in general emotional disorders compared to the general population, which suggests that there is a tendency towards co-aggregation that's more likely to have a neurobiological underpinning as opposed to be just a secondary characteristic to the motor disorder. Thank you, Dr. Martino. Thank you, Davide, for this overview and update on the non-motor features of dystonia. And I wish to thank you from behalf of the Movement Disorder Society. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Francesca. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>